Welcome to the Vitality Radio Podcast, your source for the truth about health, wellness, and real alternatives to drugs, surgeries, and the status quo of healthcare. Here, you'll find information that empowers you to take control of your health. But it's not just about health and wellness, it's about the politics of healthcare and protecting your health freedom. Now, here's your host, Jared St. Clair. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Vitality Radio. I am so excited today to bring you the guests that I have lined up. I met this gentleman at the Your Health Freedom Symposium that you've been hearing me talk about over the last several weeks and uh, had a unique opportunity, uh, multiple opportunities actually, to sit down and talk with him. We had dinner together a couple of times, uh, lunch together once, and then spoke uh, on the same stage. And so I got to know who was a perfect stranger a little bit uh, during this last weekend, and it was an absolute pleasure to get to know him. I'll let him introduce himself here in just a minute, but I want to let you know that this episode of Vitality Radio is for those of you who are willing to think critically. There is a lot of information out there, and I would dare say a lot more of it is misinformation or disinformation than what you may be thinking that there is. And I would like to throw out there that perhaps all of the stuff you're hearing that is misinformation may not actually be. And the misinformation may be the people telling you that that's misinformation, (laughs) if that makes any sense. We have a lot of censorship going on. We have a lot of mouths being muzzled. Uh, This is a special podcast-only episode because I have been restrained from uh, doing certain things on the local radio myself. And so in my response to that and my desire to speak my truth freely, uh, I am doing a lot of special things on the podcast only. I hope you enjoy what I'm about to bring you. And whether you immediately agree or disagree or whether or not this strikes you as truth or fiction. I don't think any of that really matters. The point is we need to unmuzzle these mouths and let opinions uh, flow and allow for debate in the public forum. That is such a critical element of all of this that we're dealing with when it comes to our health and of science in general. And to ever say that the science is settled on anything whether it be COVID or COVID vaccines, is the opposite of the scientific process. So without further ado, I'd like to go ahead and welcome my guest. His name is Dr. Lawrence Pilevsky. Doc, it is so good to see you once again. Thank you for coming on Vitality Radio. Uh, Thank you, Jared. It's a pleasure to be here, and it was fun meeting you in Utah. Yeah, now you're in New York, uh, Long Island, I believe it is. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, so you uh, you took a bit of a, a trip over here, and we sure appreciate you uh, spending your time with us. I know I received in comments people talking to me about what I had to say and telling me that I did a great job and whatever else. Uh, many of them also mentioned how much they enjoyed your your talk. And when I told them that I had already talked to you about coming on my show, they got really excited. So uh, hopefully those folks are listening right now. I hope so, too. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your history? Uh, what type of medicine do you practice? That sort of thing. So um, I was born and raised in New York and uh, pretty much lived here almost my entire life. I decided to go to medical school and graduated at NYU School of Medicine in 1987, New York University, and uh, did 
three years of pediatric residency at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York and uh, did a one-year fellowship at Bellevue Hospital in the outpatient department. The next nine years after those 12 years, four years of college, four years of medical school, and four years of training, the next nine years, I was working in pediatric emergency room in the Bronx. I ran a pediatric intensive care unit in a hospital in Manhattan. I also worked in a neonatal intensive care unit and uh, did inpatient pediatrics with residents and medical students. I covered the ER. I went to high-risk deliveries, had an outpatient clinic. And for the last 21 years or so, I have had a, a private practice in holistic integrative pediatric medicine. So you've got a little bit of experience under your belt. But I've certainly, I've, I've certainly seen the, the best and the worst of Western and an expanded practice of medicine. So my first question actually comes out of curiosity, I guess, for myself. Why pediatrics? Well, it's interesting because I'd always loved kids. I mean, I was, uh, I was a camper. I went to day camp. I went to sleepaway camp. I became a, a CIT, a counselor in training. I became a counselor. I just loved being around kids. And during medical school, there was this overarching theme that we were told, why go to NYU School of Medicine if you're going to go into anything other than medicine and surgery? And so the only reason I questioned pediatrics was because of that pressure. Okay. And then when I did my clinical rotations, it was clear that pediatrics was just something that I thrived in. And when I got to finally making the decision, it was between pediatrics and medicine. The only reason I thought of medicine was because of the pressure. And then I realized, well, if I had a 55-year-old man who weighed 300 pounds, smoked three packs of cigarettes a day, and uh, wouldn't diet, wouldn't stop smoking, what was my alternative other than shifting his medications? And that was 1986. And, you know, I, I had no idea what holistic medicine was. I was completely, like, out of, the, out of the realm of anything to do with holistic medicine. And so I realized that I could probably have more of an impact as a physician by working with kids. And so I just said, what am I doing? I, I don't like adults when it comes to practicing <laughs> medicine. I just don't. The histories are too long, too complicated. They're not, not as likely to take responsibility for their health. You know, I didn't want to just monitor and titrate medicines. So I decided the obvious was pediatrics. And I'm, I don't regret that for one second. I mean, I really enjoy kids. I love talking to kids. I love playing with kids. I love watching kids grow. They teach me. They're fascinating. They're, they're open-hearted. They're easy to connect to. And um, they're honest. And I guess, you know, after doing this for 34 years, I realized, well, they were very healing for me as well in my own inner process of growth and maturity as a man, as a doctor, and just as a human being. So uh, it was just, it, it still is, it's fascinating to access the parts of my child development that I didn't actually access during the stages of those years of my life. And so having the kids around me really helped me access those parts of me that needed cultivating and growing and learning and healing 
kids are the bomb. Uh, I, I would never, I still, to this day, when, you know, people ask me in the office, do you, do I see adults? And I said, yeah, I just did. You know, I spent a, a, an hour, an hour and a half, 45 minutes working with you to help the kid. Everything about taking care of kids is about helping the parents right. get in line to what the kids are needing, what the kids are saying. Yeah. Kids, kids are just, they're just open. They open my heart. They really do. They're honest. They're sincere. They're direct and they're untainted. Mm. They're, they're not uh, jaded yet by the world. I absolutely agree. As a, a father and also a scoutmaster for 10 years, uh, I, uh, I agree. Being around the, the young people is about the best thing you can do. And it does, it, it, it enlightens you in so many ways. And, and I agree, the honesty might be the best part. Uh, so that, that's awesome. I, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, so cool. then you mentioned uh, in your introduction that you have seen kind of the, uh, the best and worst uh, and you also said that holistic medicine wasn't on your radar way back when. So, uh, what is it that, uh, you saw maybe in the worst of things that, uh, made you start to look into alternatives? Well, it was interesting. My first four years working in the emergency room in the Bronx, New York, and this was 1991 to 1995, I would start to see the same patients in the ER every couple of weeks sick with the same illnesses, the fevers, the asthma, the seizures, whatever, whatever symptoms they were having. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I really can't do anything for these people other than just give them the same medicines and send them on their way. Mm -hmm. And I realized after four years of medical school and four years of training, I could not address what it was that may have been underlying contributing factors to why they were getting sick. And so when I started to look into that and ask those questions, I thought, wow, Western medicine didn't prepare me for anything related to what are the contributing factors, you know, and, and, you know, e even looking back, I, I would say that it wasn't relevant. Nobody cared. It didn't matter. And if you did ask, well, what are the contributing factors to someone getting these illnesses, they would sort of scoff at you and say, Really? Like as a third year medical student, this was 1985, I was doing surgery and we were doing a journal club on inflammatory bowel disease. And you had the surgery attending and the, the surgery fellow, they were presenting a case and you know, we were talking about, you know, I think it was Crohn's disease and, and uh, ulcerative colitis. And they were talking about the surgical approach. And I, I don't remember everything else that was said, but you know, I raised my hand and I said, well, you know, is, the literature also indicates that there's a psychological impact of the patient's uh, psyche on the, you know, symptoms that they may have in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And they kind of looked at me, turned their noses down at me, scowled, sort of gave a hump, you know, and then went on with the, uh, with, with the rest of the, the session. And I thought to myself, what, 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 where, what happened there? I'm just quoting literature, uh, right. what the literature says. So uh, that, that's only uh, in hindsight that I remember saying that. But during the, my years in the ER, I thought, I have no way of understanding 
how to help these kids who are constantly getting sick. And so, I don't know, I, I, there was a nurse who worked in the adult side in the ER who occasionally covered pediatrics, who was studying to be an acupuncturist. And so she started talking to me about Chinese medicine. And I just leaned in because I thought it was interesting. You know, <clears throat> I, I didn't claim to know everything. And I didn't mind learning something new that was different from what I was told was true. So I started listening. And then she referred me to an acupuncturist who I started going to see. And I started learning more about acupuncture and Chinese medicine. And then she referred me to a chiropractor about certain things. And I thought, what chiropractor, what's that? So I went and I started talking to her and I wanted to learn more. And there was this comment, the body has the innate capacity to heal. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Like, this, this is not medicine. This Since when? Right. So, <laughs> so in, instead of, again, instead of turning my nose up at it, I just leaned in and said, what, what is this? What's more here? What, what can I, what, what can I learn here? And I was just a very curious young man and never stopped being interested in things that I didn't know. And so it just got me on this whole journey of asking questions and then realizing that all of these fields of medicine, Jared, the homeopathy, which I started to learn, and naturopathy, I started to learn, and chiropractic and Chinese medicine, and Ayurvedic medicine, I started to realize that they all held this underlying belief of the body has the innate capacity to heal. And I thought, well, Western medicine doesn't even address it. Right. But the question was, is it somewhere in Western medicine or Western science that we don't even look at? And could I find it? Okay. Could I find it in the principles of the uh, science that we're taught. And so I kept searching for years until I finally found it in about 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago, where I realized that every single body function is geared towards making sure the body stays well. And that means that all the ologies, the pulmonology, the cardiology, the dermatology, the nephrology, the gastroenterology, the immunology, the neurology, all of them, had in their basic uh, tenets, the understanding and the teaching that every system is built to keep the body well. And this every system does that by making sure that impurities, waste, toxins, and inflammatory materials get out of the body. So the information was there, but not being utilized? Is that how you'd put it? Correct. So, you know, if we look at the body and how the body works, we realize, you know, we take for granted that we exhale. We take for granted that we urinate. We take for granted that we have bowel movements. We take for granted that we sleep or exercise or scream. Uh, we take for granted that we sweat and smell. And all five of those functions occur as a means by which the body removes impurities, toxins, and wastes and inflammatory material. And it's a must. You know, I mean, people don't think about exhaling and going, 
ah, got rid of a nice set of wastes, you know, 24 <laughs> times a minute, right? Right. Or, you know, they, they don't think about that that's what the body is doing. And the right. reason the body is doing that is because any accumulation of wastes, toxins, impurities, inflammatory material is a recipe for the body to slow down or even become chronically sick. So really the body is just constantly detoxifying itself, trying to get rid of Yeah, I hate to use the word detox. The, de the word detox, Jared, is such a buzzword nowadays because um, the, the body is doing its natural function. It's removing naturally the wastes, impurities, toxins, and inflammatory materials that are either byproducts of uh, what we put in or material that we put in that needs to get out anyway, right? Because right? we put materials in the body that are not pure. I mean, Lots of them. By definition, <laughs> uh, just by limit, right? By what yeah, we, well, just by we breathing, our, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. What yeah. we put in our mouths, what we put in our air, what we put on our skin, what we put in our nervous system, and what we inject into the body. We, we selectively and electively choose to put impurities in our body. And for the most part, we don't care. I mean, if you really look around <laughs> at our culture and in our world, we don't care. We don't care if there's GMO in our bodies. We don't care if there are pesticides in our bodies. We don't care if we put uh, wastes in our bodies. We don't care if we inject heavy metals or toxins. We don't care. We don't care if we're eating dyes, preservatives, additives, food colorings. We don't care if there's foods that have antibiotics and all the genetically modified stuff and antibiotics that are put in the foods. We don't care. We don't care. We just want what we want. So, you know, we, we don't care if we're getting, you know, electrocuted uh, or electromagnified by Wi-Fi and 5G cell towers because we want our cell phones and we want our computers and we want our iPads and we want what we want. We want our electronics. We want our video games. So we selectively and electively put waste and toxins in our body and we think, ah, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be fine. We're not, we're not a problem. So the question, I, I, I've thought about this a lot and I, I certainly agree with you. The question I have is, why do you think that is? Our bodies are so resilient. Our, uh, the, the desire for our body to be whole and to uh, maintain homeostasis is so strong that I think my view on it, and I'd be, be very curious to hear yours, is that if there was an instant uh, negative effect that we could immediately recognize when we ate a food dye or a, a, a genetically modified organism or put uh, a toxic product on our skin or whatever, then maybe many of us anyway would say, well, not doing that. But because our bodies can handle a tremendous amount of abuse before obviously breaking down, uh, maybe most of us don't recognize what we're actually doing. So I don't know that even that would work because you have hundreds of thousands of kids who get vaccinated and they have an immediate reaction to it. And the majority of the people who see it don't believe it. Mm. They don't believe it. Right. You have, you know, a great portion of the population where kids will eat a food 
and uh, parents will not make the association between their coughing or their mucus production or their bedwetting or their diarrhea to the food or their skin rash to the food or their wheezing. They won't make the association to the food. To the food, the doctors certainly don't. You know how many ENT docs and dermatologists and pulmonologists will tell parents, uh, "It doesn't matter what you eat." How many? endocrinologists tell parents of kids with diabetes it doesn't matter what kind of sugar you eat just as long as you monitor your blood sugar and uh give your kid the right amount of insulin so i'm not so sure even if it struck them in the face that it would matter much but but here's something that i find interesting What, what what sometimes i do when i work with kids and families as I'll say to the kid, uh, your parents have a car, right? Or I'll say to the kid who's old enough, I'll say, you have a car, right? I said, right. I said, so tell me, if, if your gas tank gauge said E, uh, and I went over and I f- put five gallons of Gatorade, four gallons of water, three gallons of juice, and let's say three gallons of soda into the gas tank, what would your gauge needle say? It would say full. I said, okay, great. All right. I filled up your car. I did what I was supposed to do. I filled up your car. Now, turn the key. What's going to happen? Well, the car won't run. I said, exactly. And why is that? And the bottom line is that the car is not resilient. And the fact of the matter is that the body is, the blessing of the body is that we're resilient. Right. And the curse of the body. Yeah. Curse of the body is that we're resilient because we take much more care in making sure we put the ingredients that need to go into a car, that need to go into a computer, that need to go into a cell phone, that need to go into a PlayStation, that need to go into Wi Fi, that need to go into all these inanimate objects and could care less about what we put on ourselves and in ourselves. It's a fascinating disconnect. And, and you know, a- again, it starts with an overarching culture. And the medicine is part of that culture where they say nutrition is not a field of medicine. Huh. Right? I remember in 1983 that that was one of the first statements the dean of my medical school said in 1983, when he introduced himself to the class of 87, it was like within the first three minutes, nutrition is not a field of medicine. And I don't know why it struck me. I don't know why it struck me because I knew nothing about nutrition at that point. And I was a first year medical student and first day medical student. And I thought, wow, the overriding culture says it matters what kind of cotton you put in your shirt. It matters what kind of colors you use in your clothes. It matters what kind of makeup you use. It matters what kind of car you drive and all of that. But it doesn't matter what you put in your body. And I thought to myself, disconnect. well, I mean, it's like, where do people think the chemicals come from if your body's going to work? 
I mean, that's, that's the question. I, I couldn't imagine, you know, I, I'll never forget. It was the late 1990s. I was running a pediatric ICU at the time. And a pediatric gastroenterologist had come into the ICU to see a patient. And he was just overjoyed. He was so excited because they had just come out with this drug that was, was an anti-leukotriene drug, similar to Singulair. And it was going to help all these patients with inflammatory bowel disease who had very, very high levels of this chemical in the body called leukotrienes. And now there are inflammatory leukotrienes and there are anti-inflammatory leukotrienes. But kids with inflammatory bowel disease had very, very high levels of inflammatory leukotrienes. And they were going to come up with this, this drug that was going to stop the production of inflammatory leukotrienes, or at least stop the effect of the leukotrienes, not stop the production. And I let him go on and on. And I looked at him and I said, Bill, why do you need a drug if you could just change the types of fats and sugars that the kids are eating? Because that will directly impact the amount of inflammatory leukotrienes because leukotrienes are derived from the fats that we eat in the diet and they're affected by the sugars that we eat in the diet. And he looked at me, blank faced, <laughs> didn't say a word, and then went back to writing in the chart. And that was the end of the conversation. Wow. And I thought, so this is about six, seven years after I started working in the pediatric emergency room in the Bronx, where I started to realize I did not know how to address contributing factors to what made kids continuously sick. And so it didn't take long for me to learn that, but I could see that the system was so uh, uninterested. And so when I covered a neonatal intensive care unit and I would see the, the you know, for the babies who could not be fed orally because they were either too small or too sick, but we had to give them nutrition, I would look at the bag that was hanging of something called intralipids, which is, a, you know, just a, a, a whole thing of fats. Mm-hmm. And I would look at them and they would all be omega-6 fats. Wow. And I, I bring to the attention of the neonatologists, like, why are you doing that? You want your kids to get better. Why are all your fats like sunflower oil and safflower oil and soybean oil, you know, all of the, you know, processed polyunsaturated omega-6 fatty acids. And they wouldn't, they didn't care. They didn't care. And then I worked with a family in the NICU where I think the mother gave birth to 31-week twins, okay, a boy and a girl. And uh, very sadly, the girl died. And the boy was left. And he was on 41% oxygen through the nasal cannula that delivered positive pressure. It's called CPAP. Mm-hmm. And 41% oxygen, and we could not get his oxygen down for days and days and days. And he was being fed by mouth. Mom was expressing breast milk, and the tube was in his mouth going to his stomach, and he was getting fed. 
And for days, he was just lingering, 41%, Jared, 41%. Now we breathe 21%. And I pulled the mother aside and I said to her, listen, uh, I'm really sorry about your daughter and I'd love to be able to help you with your, with your son. I said, there are plenty of studies that show that omega-3 fats are very, very anti-inflammatory and can be very good for uh, quieting lung inflammation and uh, improving his oxygen capacity. I said, if you're open to it, uh, I'd like you to go home and start taking two to four grams of DHA per day. And that'll go through the breast milk and then we'll see how he does. I, I'm pr I don't think there's gonna be any danger and I think it'll actually really help his lung function. Okay. Within three days of him getting the, the breast milk, his oxygens were down to 29% requirement. Wow. Within three days. I mean, he went exponentially down really fast. And then he cruised. And now he's probably like, assuming nothing other else happened to him, he's probably like 23 years old. And I mean, to me, that was like, why are they just putting omega-6 fats in those kids who can't feed and why aren't they encouraging mothers who are able to express breast milk and give it to their babies who are being either orally fed through a tube, nasally fed through a tube or uh, given a bottle because they're not old enough yet to uh, breastfeed or they can't right. give them a breast. Why aren't they doing that? Nope. No. Why would they? Well, especially the, the frustration that I'm sure you felt, especially being right there, you know, watching it happen, is that this isn't something that is a secret that omega-3 fatty acids reduce inflammation. That's in the medical literature. Irrelevant. So high. It's irrelevant, though. So then what's your thought process on this? Why is it irrelevant? Why are people giving you blank face stares when you're pointing out the obvious? So there, there are four boxes of knowledge. I know what I know. I know what I don't know. I don't know what I know. I don't know what I don't know. And the last box is not a part of medicine or American culture. It's funny that you say that because I did an entire episode of this podcast uh, titled we don't know what we don't know. There you go. <laughs> right. So there's a secret. When it comes to COVID. That. Well, when it comes to anything. Right. You know, and that's why, that's why I said, you know, children actually teach me so much about our development because when an infant becomes a toddler, what does a toddler do when exposed to something completely new and unknown? They go for it. Right. Right. There's full curiosity. There's full interest. There's full exploration and discovery and observation and examination and and you know testing. You know, there's no fear or hesitation. They're just going to open that cabinet. They're going to close it. They're going to pull out what's in it. Uh, they're going to try and get on that chair and they're going to fall off and they're going to go. Oh, that's what happens when I do this. And they're going to go again. That stage of development is lost to adults across the board. There's yeah. a complete loss of 
curiosity, unknown, uncertainty. And it's almost as if that part of child development either never happened or was completely forgotten and never incorporated into uh, the psyche as the person continued to grow up. Because, you know, what if, what if you don't know something? And what I saw back in the early 90s when I was working in the emergency room and starting to, you know, learn about all these other fields of medicine was that um, modern medicine was not curious about anything other than what it delivered. Right. And that became very distressing to me because I'm so curious. Like, I love learning. And I love learning new things. And yeah, it takes a hit to the ego when you realize, <laughs> oh my God, I didn't know that. Like, right. I should have known that. How did I not know that? But, you know, over the years, children have been the catalysts for demonstrating to me, you know, how to learn on even deeper levels because they're, they're constantly exploring new things. I love that. That's, that's great. So then when you going back in this little history lesson here, uh, when, when you were discovering all of these issues, I guess, with Western medicine, and you were discovering that there were things outside of Western medicine that had value, how did that change your career? What, what, what was it that gave you the shift to look at something different than what you were doing? Well, at some point, I realized that I could not learn to, to take the underlying contributing factors and the root causes and work within a hospital setting successfully because there was no interest in that being done. But it goes even darker than that. Jared, when I was when I was an attending in the hospital and I was truly practicing Western medicine the way I was trained to do it, right. I was scolded. And what I mean by that is I was taught pediatric medicine from pediatricians who lived and practiced medicine in New York in the 1940s all the way to the 1980s. And early 90s. And they did something so brilliant. They knew how to take a good history. They know how to they knew how to look for every question to ask in order to understand the child. And they had six senses. They had smell, they had sight, they had hearing, they had taste, they had touch, and they had intuition. And they taught us how to really assess a child and go through all the differential possibilities as to what could be the, the problems related to the condition that the kids were presenting with. They had no tests. They had predominantly the six senses, and the knowledge to take a good history and a good physical exam. 
And they were almost always right in what they thought the diagnosis was. Fast forward another eight to 10 years, and there I am, an in, you know, an attending on the wards, and medical students would present a case, and they would present, a five-year-old came into the ER with a headache, and the MRI showed. And I would stop them, and I'd say, what? Wait a second. Uh, give me more of the history first. Mm-hmm. Don't go right to the test. And the medical student resident had no history to tell me. They had no physical exam to tell me. All they had was headache, MRI. This was the result. So truly not really treating the patient at all. No, it was just the symptom. It was the true beginnings of the algorithmic protocol medicine that is is plaguing us today in the year 2021. And so that in and of itself was distressing. And then on top of that, to realize that I was looking at all these ways in which I could learn how to help patients through nutrition, through lifestyle, through, you know, other therapies, and there was no room for it in Western medicine that mm-hmm. I knew. And so I had to get out. I had to get out, and I did. And I, I got, in the year 2000, I started working as the pediatrician in practice at Beth Israel Medical Center in New York, was opening a continuum center for health and healing. And I was the pediatrician in practice there for two and a half years. And uh, it was a blast. I mean, I started to really, you know, do the kind of primary care that I had not done since residency, where I could follow patients and I could support them in uh, maintaining health, preventing weaknesses, and using therapies that did not suppress the body's innate capacity to heal when symptoms occurred. And, uh, you know, just the other day, I saw a 22, 21-year-olds who I knew since they were babies Hmm. and who remained healthy, unvaccinated, and uh, thriving. I mean, really, really thriving in the world. That's got to feel good. Oh, it's, you know, talk about love. You know, talk about heartwarming and and inspiring to see the growth and the development, the spiritual development of these young men. Just exciting. Very, very exciting. So then from that post for two and a half years, is that when you went into private practice? No, no. I was already in I started in practice in April of 2000. Oh, okay. And I stayed, I stayed in that office till October of 2002. You know, it was a practice where I saw patients for regular pediatric care. I did consults for families who had children with chronic illnesses who were looking for other means of healing other than pharmaceutical interventions. And, you know, I, I offered vaccines in my office, but I welcomed children into the office whose families said no we either want to delay them or we don't want to give them at all. That's pretty hard to find for most parents. 
uh, a, a pediatrician who's welcoming of that way of doing things. Why do you think that is? Well, again, it's the ideology that the only way to stay healthy in the world is to get a vaccine. So what's wrong with that? <laughs> what's well, wrong with that ideology I, in your opinion? I, I, think, I think the question, what's right with that is a shorter answer. Okay. <laughs> Let's go there then. What's right with that? Okay, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he, here's the thing that I think that I find interesting. I grew up in a household that is was not typical of the uh, 70s and 80s for sure. My dad was fully on board with traditional ways of, of uh, taking care of our bodies and healing ourselves and things like that. And it was a unique childhood because everything that, you know, the well baby checks that all the other babies, all the other parents were sending their kids in for, we weren't going in for. I don't think my mom ever knew what percentile I was on any chart. It was a very, very different way of, of being raised. And we were looked at I don't know how, what the word is. I don't know if it was, um, you know, down people's noses or, or just as strange, you know, why, why do they do things differently in that house? You know, why is it that they're the ones eating, you know, whole wheat bread instead of white bread and they don't eat sugar cereals and they use, you know, real maple syrup and not, you know, Aunt Jemima or whatever. And what is it about them and why are they so weird? And I remember thinking, not knowing exactly if I was weird or not, <laughs> like what's going on here because of the way that everything else was or everybody else was doing things. And what I have come to understand, I think came to understand as a, as a, a teenager. And then especially as a young adult is that, yeah, we were weird in the way that we were doing things. It was unusual for sure in the modern world. And on the other hand, it felt right. Like as a, as a kid being raised that way, it felt totally normal to be weird. If that makes sense. Like it was okay to let our bodies do what they were designed to do in the first place. And I became very, very comfortable with that at a pretty young age and certainly carried that into raising my own children. But uh, what I believe has happened to a large degree, and I, I'm very curious your opinion on this with parents, is that they're so concerned about hurting their child or their child not developing, quote unquote, correctly or not being protected that they just, to a large degree, do what they're told they need to do by the experts who are all saying the same thing. And I put yeah. experts in quotes. I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to, to know, an, uh, I'm old enough to have enough of a, of a retrospectoscope or, you know, enough of a lens to watch trends. And I don't think there's ever been a time in the 60 years I've been alive where peer pressure and keeping up with the Joneses wasn't the main focus of a society in which we all live. I, I think you know, there's, from what there's, I've seen. Yeah, there's always been peer pressure. There's always been, you know, mass speak, so to speak. You know, you, you, 
you, you do it because everyone else does it, right? right. And, and that's what they say, you know, and they say because they say, you know. So I, I don't think there's ever been a time where, where uh, people truly lived individually in community rather than in mass in community. Yeah. And I think, I think we're suffering the result of that not happening. So your family, you know, sort of was the initial popcorn popping in the, in the popper, but it was, a, you know, another minute before another kernel popped because you were the outliers. You were the first bit of people who started living that way. And, you know, I think that it's very threatening. It's very, very threatening to the mass speak for people to individuate in community. Yeah. And I think, again, that's, that's, that's where, that's why we're having the trouble we're having now. Um, people are threatened by anyone who doesn't do what they do. Because if you're doing something that they don't do, then they have to question whether what they're doing is right for them. And they just don't go there. Right. Because there's no reason for them to question what they're doing because they say to do it, so they do it. And the, the, what I will say over the 60 years is that the ability to use intuition and use critical thinking has diminished. Yeah. And that the adherence, the adherence to the they say has become much more ideological and violent because, you know, there's this idea that they say because they love us or they say because they're really protecting us or they say because they would never do anything to harm us because you know, the leaders, you know, I mean, look at it, Jared, nowhere in history, have you ever seen leaders take advantage or kill their own people? Right? <laughs> no, that's never happened. That I that's guess. never happened. So, so, you know, to think <laughs> that it would be happening now is, you know, is pretty outrageous. So, oh, yeah. you know, so you have to follow what they say, because otherwise, you know, you'd be, you'd be experiencing something in history that's just never happened. And so we have diminished our ability to utilize our own critical thought process and our own tapping in like, oh, wait a second, that doesn't sound right. You know, so, so when, when a president says, We're, we need to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated coworkers, people just stand there and go, yeah, yeah, it's about time get those MFs. Yeah, those unvaccinated people. And, and they never stop to just address the statement to actually realize that it is such an asinine statement that makes not only no common sense, but no medical sense. Right. But in order for them to do that, they would have to address the fact that what they say is in a long line of things that are really screwing you. And yeah. you haven't taken the responsibility. You haven't been accountable. 
you haven't stepped up to actually realize what you're participating in and what they've been saying that you've been going along with. Right. right? And so mass change takes sometimes decades or even centuries for consciousness to shift. And so we're at a, I think we're at a place where, you know, we will truly, truly have to uh, step into a level of accountability and responsibility that looks at they sayers with much more disdain and caution than, than we have in a long time. Because that statement, we need to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated co-workers, is the epitome of the stupidity and of the lies and of the myths and of the uh, manipulations that have been going on for decades. And the fact that people adhere to that kind of statement and see nothing wrong with it means that they're not critically thinking, they're not going, wait a second, <coughs> what is he really saying? You know, they're just mass speaking, they're mass, right. you know, and, and that ideology, that ideology, if it crumbles, will then make people realize that they have allowed themselves to be duped and lied to and basically manipulated for many, many decades. And the yeah, level of anger that comes from that is what I'm hoping for. <laughs> well, I and, and I think that's what I, I find interesting about this. You know, you obviously have a pretty long history now of, of looking at things more holistically. I have a long history of looking at things that way as well. So when all of this COVID stuff came along, the the fear mongering and everything that was going on wasn't scaring me. I'm sure it wasn't scaring you uh, in terms of, you know, I need to be terrified and, and hide in my basement and whatever else I need to do. So it's it's a little easier for people who have have a different history of uh, of what they listen to and what they believe, certainly. But what I find is very interesting and encouraging and I find hope in is that there are a lot of people who don't have the history that I have, that you have, that are hearing statements like protect the vaccinated worker from the unvaccinated coworker and saying, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense because you barely have to critically think to understand that that statement makes no sense. That That's a tiny little bit of critical thought there. Right. But and the people who are pushing back against the the freedom thing and the mandate thing and all that, I think are, are starting to also question this whole vaccine narrative that's going on around it. Go ahead. Yeah, but I, I don't think people are ready to really address what that statement says. And, you know, so, so again, I'll just backtrack there. To, to my understanding, there are three ways of knowing things. There's your intuition, where you hear something or see something and you, you tap in and you go, wait a second, does that sound right? Does that feel right? Does that look right? How, how, how does my system really process what I just heard or saw? Right? Intuition. Right. Two, you know things because you've toiled. 
you've experimented, you've mm -hmm. researched, you've experienced, you've owned a set of knowledge because you saw it happen, you felt it happen, you heard it happen, you watched it happen. You earned it. You earned it, right. Yeah. Your, it's yours. It's ownership. And then the third way of knowing things is, you know, authority tells you something and uh, you believe it. And so what I have seen in the last couple of decades is an ever-increasing loss of the first and second ways of knowing things and an amplification and a strengthening of only knowing things from what the authority tells you. So it's, it's been this absolute worship and idolization of these false gods and false idols. Yeah, and I believe that, and I often <laughs> call modern medicine itself, Western medicine, uh, very much a religion. Right, but and it's not it's just medicine, Jared. Held on it's, to that way. Right, but it's not just medicine. It's government, it's media, right. it's Hollywood, it's science. You know, it's the, you know, it's the, I, I relinquish all responsibility and accountability for my decisions. Uh, I don't have to know anything. I will just rely on you dumping the information into me and then I'll know it. And so if you go to someone who knows something, who's an expert and their knowing and expertise is simply based on what they say. Right. Then they will fight you to the, to the death. Because if you expose that they don't know anything other than what they're told, you realize that they're just a house of cards. Right. Right. And they got nothing behind it. Right. So, so if you said to somebody who abides by Biden's statement, we have to protect the vaccinated workers from the unvaccinated coworkers, they're going to fight you that the unvaccinated workers are danger that they spread disease, that they're, they're pariahs, they're lepers, they're irresponsible, they're disease carrying, you know, and all of that. And if you say to them, well, explain that to me, they got nothing. <laughs> right? Because there's, no, there's nothing there. There's nothing there because, right. because they would have to say, that, well, if you're vaccinated, you no longer carry the germ and you can no longer transmit the germ. And so that's why unvaccinated people are such uh, unclean and diseased because the vaccinated no longer carry or transmit the germ. And that's wrong. Right. Right. Because vaccines have never proven that those who get vaccinated no longer carry the germ or can transmit the germ. That's never been proven. It's just right. the mythology. <laughs> so <laughs> in, in order for you to say that the unvaccinated are clean, unclean, you're going to have to say that the vaccinated no longer are able to transmit or carry the germ. And you've not thought that through because there's no science to back that up. But because they say it, you just keep, yeah, 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 pumping, and you have no idea what you're talking about. Then on top of that, 
the vaccinated workers need to be protected. Well, wait a second, they're vaccinated. Why wouldn't they be protected just from being vaccinated? So now you're saying that even though they're vaccinated, which is supposed to protect them, they're not protected because there are unvaccinated people who are threatening them. So how does that make sense? Not even a little. Right. So, but, but you'd have to go through the steps. Right. To actually realize that you're such full of bull and such full of, of, of stupidity. I mean, literally stupidity, not even ignorance, just stupidity that, that you, you'd realize that you swallowed everything without a gag reflex. And this is where we are. This is where we are. And, and the, you know, the other thing, the other thing, and I, I spoke about this in Utah, is this idea that if you're vaccinated, you're immune. Like automatically. So anyone who's vaccinated is immune. Well, that's not true. Because there's a certain percentage of people who never get immune when they're vaccinated. Right. They have no immune response at all. And then there's another larger percentage of people that even though they do develop immunity, it's not a protective immunity. It's another type of immunity. And so there could be anywhere from two to 40% of people who are given the shot, who either never develop an antibody or develop an antibody that's not even effective. Meaning? It, it, it's not, it's not going to protect you. Right. So there's this stupidity again. Well, if you're vaccinated, you're immune. No, that's not true for any vaccine. And then the third problem, Jared, is that this COVID injection is not a vaccine. Right. And that, that automatic, you know, swallowing without a gag reflex is what's going to bring down our country and the world. And the, what the irony is that the most, the people most swallowing without a gag reflex are the ones who've gone to the most schooling and held the highest jobs in our country. And the people who are most aware of the fact that this is not a vaccine at all, and it's not going to protect you against a, an illness, and if anything, it's going to cause illness, are the ones who have intuition and life experience and know how to critically think. And those are usually the ones who are lesser schooled, but better educated on life. Right. Less indoctrinated and better educated. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So, well, and it's interesting too, with these so-called uh, mRNA, you know, vaccines, we, they even in the public record, it's very clear. And it's even been on uh, major media outlets, which is kind of shocking to me that these people absolutely carry a viral load and can spread this illness. And that's not something that generally has been talked about with other vaccines, out in the open anyway. Well, and with this it, one, it, we're hearing it a lot more. It, again. It's talked about in my circles. Well, uh, sure. But I mean, that's what I mean. This is actually something that's now been made because everybody's paying so much attention. There's such a hyper focus on these vaccines, if you want to call them that specifically, that as much information is, as it isn't censored, uh, we're seeing that, yeah, there isn't really a protection. The only protection that is 
they're really claiming that it offers is that maybe you won't get as sick uh, if you right. contract it's, the illness. You know, there are so many, there's so many problems with the narrative around COVID that I don't even know where to begin, Jared, because um, there's a lot of acceptances. You know, they say, therefore it is. Right. Number one, the thing that's making people sick is not a naturally occurring organism. Whatever is making people sick with the symptoms of COVID is not a naturally occurring organism. It is something that is man-made and synthetic. That's a hard pill to swallow because, you know, well, you know, they would never hurt us, right? Right. But, you know, they would never do anything nefarious. Why would they want to do that? You know, they would, they would never, never do because nowhere in history has Joseph Mengele ever existed. Right. So, you know, Idi Amin never existed. Pol Pot never existed. Hitler never existed. Napoleon never existed. Mussolini never existed. Right. Generalissimo Franco never existed. Right. All yeah. these, all these despots, czars never, never existed. They never tortured or hurt their kids, their people, never experimented on their people at all. Never. No, no, never. Yeah, I think uh, the end. Insert, uh, insert New York sarcasm. What? Yeah. Doomed to repeat it, right? Yeah. Isn't that what they say about history? Yeah. What, I, what I said was insert New York sarcasm in there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's really strong evidence that the disease of COVID symptoms that started, you know, in late 2019 and went through 2020 uh, is not consistent with a naturally occurring virus. And that was ignored. And even when doctors who were seeing patients from the beginning, who were saying, wait a second, this is not typical of a viral illness. This is something different. This is the treatment for this is not respiratory, you know, addressing. It's not it's not respiratory distress. This is something different. And they were censored. And so it made those of us in medicine who were critically thinking turn around and say, what? You're, you're telling us not to take care of the patient based on the clinical presentation. You're telling us to take care of the patient based on what you say the protocol should be because you're telling us what to treat them with and not to talk about what it is that we see happening that's different than a viral illness. So that's when I knew, especially when I had the disease of COVID and I realized, no, this is not a viral illness. And when colleagues of mine who practice Chinese medicine, who were treating people who had this illness, were saying, no, this is, this is consistent with a poisoning. And then when you see, you know, evidence that, you know, our head of the National Institute of Allergy and Immun Infectious Diseases is doing gain of function research on the very coronavirus that we're supposed to be getting sick from, then you know something's wrong.
Right. Because gain of function research means we know that a coronavirus is benign and we know that it can't really hurt you, but we're going to do research that gains its function, that increases its ability to hurt you. And oh, by the way, there's an epidemic happening of coronavirus infection. And then when the same person who's the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease says at a Georgetown dinner in January of 2017, there will, will be a surprise outbreak in the Trump administration. You know, how is he such a wizard of, of fortune telling? Yeah, like Nostradamus. Right. So, so that's, why, that's why those who are unable to see, hear, understand that there's something more going on and have to agree that they say because they protect us, they say because they would not hurt us, they say because they're good, are going to suffer the consequences and repeat history and become pawns in the larger Mengelian experiment of, of torturing and killing humans. And then when you get to the shot, that is nothing... The shot is so much closer to a murder weapon than it is to a healing intervention. And what's, what's, so, what's so interesting is that as more and more people are dying after the shot, more and more censorship occurs so that people don't know that more and more people are dying. And I've literally heard people say, Jared, well, if that were happening, they would tell us. <laughs> and you know you're getting in the millions of reports millions of reports of people who are having negative reactions to the shot and they are just not people just don't believe it's happening and even when they know it's happening they say oh but it's a necessary process we need to go through in order to do our duties for the greater good. Right. Wow. You you are so wedded to the ideology of uh, and worship of these people that you cannot see what's happening right in front of you. And, um, you know, it's not my job to go into the burning building and get everybody to come out because people who are getting the shot uh, are literally running into a burning building willingly. I agree. W- willingly and ignoring everything that's around them. Everything. Because they truly believe that bad would not be done to them at all. They cannot take accountability or responsibility and they cannot. Uh, muster the fury and the anger that they would have to muster to realize they're getting screwed. Yeah, I think you've uh, nailed it down pretty well there. And um, it, it more people need to hear that message and not just hear it, but listen to it. And like you said, critically think about it and ask themselves intuitively what's going on because the the challenge with this is that because we don't know what we don't know about this we know quite a bit know a lot more than we did a year and a half ago for sure 
we have to recognize that there are a lot of unanswered questions and none of this is buttoned up whatsoever. There's a lot to learn. An unbelievable amount. We are okay with putting, and this goes back to the car and the body example that I gave before about, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, filling it up and not really caring what we put in our body. We are okay injecting ourselves with an ingredient and a set of ingredients that we don't know what they are. We don't know if they've really been studied appropriately. We don't know how they're going to react in the body. We have no short-term safety studies. We have no long-term safety studies. And we've gotten wind of a good number of the ingredients that are known to be toxic, cancerous, infertility producing, and uh, murder murdering. We know it. We know that some of those ingredients are absolutely killing us. And yet we have people who would spend days, weeks, and even months making sure the house that they were buying, the car that they were buying, the phone that they were buying, the computer that they were buying, they would be turning over every stone to make sure they were so diligent about every ingredient and every aspect of those purchases. And yet they don't care that they cannot know what the ingredients are and just blindly trust. Can you imagine the people who are getting the shot walking up to any house and saying, yeah, I'll buy it and live in it without walking in, without looking at the electrical, without looking at the pipes, without looking at the flooring, without looking at the basement, without looking at the insulation, without looking at the attic, without looking at the roof, without looking at the siding, without looking at the windows, without looking at the kitchen, without, you you see what I'm going. I see it. Right. And yet we'll just roll up our sleeves for a shot that we think has been so well studied when in fact it has been so well studied that if anything bad happens to you, the company that produced it is completely immune to any liability. That's, yeah, that's how well it's been studied. Right. That's where the immunity lies. <laughs> and that, that's true immunity, right? Right. Uh, so, so again, you, you could see that, that, you know, the, there's, there's such talk about the, the mass speak, you know, and, and if you really, if you really want to look at it from another angle, we are watching people's desires trump what's in the greatest interest of their health. Oh, but I want to go to a restaurant. I'll get the shot. I want to be able to travel. I'll get the shot. I want to be able to see my family. I'll get the shot. I want to be able to go to the theater. I'll get the shot. I want to be able to go to school. I'll get the shot. Right? So you're seeing so many people getting the shot, not because it's for their health, but because it's before their desire, their want. Yeah. And And now lots of people doing it because they want to keep their job. Right. But not because it's for or against their greater good. Right. And that's where 
I said that we have so reduced our ability to individuate in community. And the only way out of this is the way a toddler separates from the mom. The toddler has to just go. And the toddler will turn around and check in. But the toddler that never leaves the side of the mother is what we're seeing today. That's the merge. That's the idolization. That's the worship of false gods. It's this, um, it's this need to have the mommy, daddy uh, nurturing that will allow them to be part of the family. Yeah. And it's killing them. It's going to kill them. And, and th I think that's where a lot of the consciousness is going to shift, where we're going to realize that um, we, we have been idolizing and worshiping this attachment to these authorities who have not been doing well by us. Yeah, I certainly couldn't have put it better myself. Well, I believe we have run up against your deadline to get out of here. I know you've got a busy, uh, a busy day ahead of you, I'm sure. And uh, boy, I would love to, uh, I'd love to do this again. I, we wanted to get into a little bit about the thought process that goes with my child is weak. I need to do things to make him strong. And we didn't get into that. <laughs> I can do it. I can do it. Do you have time for, to yeah, do that I for a minute? Do it. Yeah. I think this is uh, this is a valuable thing that people really need to hear. I think it's my right. favorite thing that you said at the symposium. Yeah, you know, you, you got to leave somebody. You got to leave people with something to to go home with, rather than to crush them with. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, okay. So our children so are weak. Right. Well, one of the statements that I hear constantly is, "How can I strengthen my child's immune system?" Right. And I, I stop parents in their tracks when they ask me that. Because uh, the next question I look at them with is, do you understand what you're really saying to me? And of course, there's this blank look like, what? You're saying to me that you inherently believe your child is weak. And so how do you strengthen your child's immune system? You don't strengthen from a place of strength you strengthen from a place of weakness. Right. Right. So you're starting with the premise that your child is weak. And I don't start with that premise. I, I, start, I start with the premise that your child is strong. So the question that needs to be asked and then answered is, how do I not weaken my child's immune system? I love it. So what are, what are the key points there? So um, for me, there are eight avenues of entry of information into a child. Okay. There's, there's the genes that they get from their parents and ancestors. Right. There's the exposure to information that they receive in utero. And then when they're born, there's the air that they breathe the material that's put in their mouth, the material that's put on their skin, the material that's injected into their skin, 
the material that is received through their nervous system, not only through their senses, but through their emotions and through the electromagnetic pulsing that they're exposed to. And then the last part of entry is their spirit. Ways in which their spirits are either seen or not seen, nurtured or not nurtured. And so we can weaken kids on any of those levels. And what's interesting is that, well, you know, the genes and the in utero stuff is done by the time a child is born. Right. You're left with six areas. And so, you know, we could, we, we, we really have to look at the body as a balance of scales. And what you have on one side of the scale is load of that information that enters all six of those avenues of entry and compare that to the child's ability to eliminate and excrete the byproducts of that load of information. Mm -hmm. But you also have the sensitizing information that comes in. It doesn't have to be a load. It could actually be a very small amount that sets the kid off. And again, that's based on the resilience and the reserves of strength that are constitutionally in the children. And so our job as parents is to recognize, well, what is my child's resilience? What are my children's reserves? What is the strength of my child's constitution to begin with? And how well does my child eliminate and excrete at all avenues that I've described before? Airway, skin, nervous system, urine, and stool. Right? Mm -hmm. And so the idea is to recognize what's the load. Are we overloading? And we can overload on any level. And then what are we exposing them to that's sensitizing them, even if it's just the smallest amount? And then take that into consideration that there are different times of day and different times of the year when those resiliences and reserves and constitutional strengths increase or decrease, depending on the weather, depending on the, the season. And so, you know, it's great to be eating strawberries and blueberries and watermelon in the hot summer months. But to be giving that to a child in the cold winter months is a greater load at a much smaller reserve because our reserves change as the days get shorter. And so all we have to do is look at what's in season, not what's in the supermarket, but you know what's in season, what grows locally, and watch the animals, what they do at different times of year. You know, when the sun is setting earlier, they are hibernating earlier. And then when the sun sets even earlier, they're hibernating even more. 
and they're resting more. <coughs> and what we have to begin to recognize is that the usage of energy during times of year when our reserves are diminishing is how you weaken your child's immune system the most. Hmm. So after June 21st, the days get shorter. Right. So for a six month period, the days are getting shorter. And here we are, I don't know when this is going to air, but here we are September 21st, just at the time of the equinox, when the days are about to get longer in darkness than in light. Right. We are truly going down to lower and lower reserves of energy in our body. And so when we increase energy usage at a time when the battery is draining out, we weaken the body. And when we overstimulate and overfeed and overschedule and overdo and overtalk and over everything, at a time of year when we should be slowing down, we weaken the child's immune system. We weaken all of our immune systems. And it's pretty basic. It's pretty basic. And when we eat the foods in the colder months that we were still eating in the summer months, we weaken the immune system because we need to be warmer in colder temperatures. We need to be eating warmer because our inner fires are weaker. Our inner reserves of energy are weaker. And so, you know, I could give a full day seminar on this in just talking about it in, you know, 10 minutes. I'm sure. Um, because, you know, it's about relearning how to connect to nature. Well, you're, it comes back to that intuitive nature, right? Because you say it's pretty basic, but it's not something that most people have probably heard before. No, because we've been so far removed from our intuition and from tapping into nature. Right. And recognizing that the days getting shorter is diminishing your energy reserves. I mean, if you don't feel it, then you're not tapping into the truth. And if you're utilizing your energy far and above what your reserves are, you're weakening yourself. It's like taking $20 out of a bank account that's, you know, $100 in arrears. <laughs> so do you believe that that's a big part of the reason why people do get sicker, I guess, in the winter months? Because they're pushing as hard as they were in the summer months? 100%. Okay. So, so, you know, I've been watching this over the years because most of the flu-like illnesses are in the, in the winter months, in the northern hemisphere or January, February, and March. And so from June 21st to December 21st in the Northern Hemisphere, the days are getting shorter until you go from the longest all the way to the shortest day. And so as you utilize more energy beyond what your diminishing energy reserves are, you will accumulate wastes. You will. I mean, it's part of your, you know, accumulation of stress and impurities. 
but your body is pretty weak. So you just keep accumulating the stress. And after December 21st, what happens is the days begin to get longer. And what happens when your days begin to get longer is your energy reserves begin to increase. Mm -hmm. And so our conversation, Jared, has come full circle. The body will do everything it possibly can to make sure impurities are removed. <laughs> and so by the time January, February, March come around, your body is getting stronger to be able to get rid of the accumulated stress from the previous, who knows, three to six months. And so it's not like you catch a virus. The virus is always around. It's not like it all of a sudden appears in October, November, December, January, and February, March. Right. It's that your body signals a need for itself to purge. And those viruses play an integral role in finishing the job for you so that you can detoxify. And if you look at what animals do in the spring, what do they do? They shed their skin. Right. right? So it's, it's necessary to actually purge in the late winter, early spring. And if we look back at, at all the, you know, childhood illnesses, you know, measles, chicken pox, rubella, when were they predominantly seen, Jared? Late winter, early spring. Yep. So these were illnesses that were expressed uh, as a result of the body's need to cleanse and purge an accumulation of excess wastes. It's that simple. You know, the, the body does not need to get sick if the balance of scales is adhered to, or at least paid attention to. Huh. I love that. That almost feels more logical than what Biden said about the unvaccinated workers. Oh, I don't even know how to address that. <laughs> it's almost like the opposite end of the scale. Yeah. What to do with that, Jared? <laughs> oh my gosh. No, I, I think that's why I say it comes back to that intuitive nature. One of the things that I have learned, thankfully, being on the more traditional side of things my whole life is that we we really do have to listen to our inner voice and that inner uh, intuition. I constantly, and I, and I have to imagine you're doing this in your practice, but when I talk to mothers and fathers, particularly mothers, when it comes to their children's health, I will say, don't discount what you know about your child inside, what you understand intuitively about your child, because there's incredible value in, in that uh, intuitive nature that is given to parents when it comes to how they raise their child and what their child needs or does not need uh, to be put inside their body and so on and so forth. And yet I believe that to a very large extent, almost to uh, almost to the full extent in this country in particular, we have decided that rather than listening to our intuitive nature, we simply will uh, outsource that right. responsibility right. to the quote unquote experts or right. the they's as you put it. Right. I'll take it even further than that. I remember when I was a kid <laughs> in the dark ages, 
And my parents would say to me, when you live in their house, you'll follow their rules. But as long as you live in my house, our house, you're going to follow our rules. Uh-huh. And I don't see that much. I see it sparingly because of the mass speak. It's because of, well, I don't want my child to feel bad, or I want my child to have the, the experience that everyone else is having. Right. So, so that's what I mean by losing the individuation in community. Yeah. Right. So it's, um, it's, it's very difficult to watch because we're not seeing the kind of individuation in community that's needed. And instead we're seeing, well, well, I don't, I don't want to not fit in or I I don't, I mean, I don't want to not feel like my kid is getting everything he wants. Right. Oh, well, wow. There's that's, life, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's another <laughs> lecture. Yeah. But I used to give there the, I used to give a lecture uh, called, you know, preparing your children for the winter. Okay. And I would go over, you know, necessary diets, necessary schedules, changes in the energy of the season and what that means. You know, how to shift parenting, how to how to shift everything so that we were living more in nature and less out of sync with nature. You know, because if you watch what happens when school starts in August and September, as the days get shorter, we ramp up all our activities, we ramp up our food consumption, we even eat more. And if you look at the ancestors, you know, they naturally ate fewer foods in the winter. less available, right? But not only was it less available, but your metabolism is supposed to slow down in the winter. Right. Right. But if your metabolism is speeding up inappropriately at a time of year when your energy reserves are going down and your energy consumption is going up because you're eating not only more, but you're eating more junk, it's a recipe for impurities. And so remember, your body has to get sick if it can't maintain the balance of the load and the sensitivity with the exit of impurities and your resilience and your reserves and your constitution. And there's actually a medical term for this. It's called allostasis. I didn't know that this was called allostasis until after I had already figured this out and then realized, oh, wow, there's actually a medical term for this. Um, (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, I've never heard that term. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, it's basically the summary of what I just described. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't. I, I guess assume there wouldn't be a medical term for it because it sounds far too traditional for Western medicine. Well, it it, it is Western medicine, but again, it's not uh, what Western medicine would allow because it knows what it knows, but it doesn't right. know what it doesn't know. Yeah. Very, very interesting, very enlightening. And I will say this intuitively, it to me makes sense. It makes sense. There is a cycle and we are, uh, we're part of that cycle. And, uh, the, you know, the days, the length of the days, the, the cycles of, of the energy within the world, uh, even having to do with, uh, you know, the, the moon and, and variety of things like that, which I'm not an expert in by any stretch of the imagination. There's 
energy in all of it and all of it matters. And there's value in understanding that and recognizing how our bodies respond uh, to that. And I believe one of the things that I've fought against for years, and gratefully, my uh, children are homeschooled uh, now, but uh, the schedule of schooling, which just absolutely smacks against the, the, what we know medically uh, children need in terms of sleep hours. And now what you're talking about with uh, slowing everything down in the wintertime when we're actually ramping everything up with Mm -hmm. sports schedules and dance and a million other things. It's really, really interesting stuff. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, well, well, you know, the educational system has nothing to do with education. So, uh, <laughs> well, it's a different type of education anyway. <laughs> I like to call it the indoctrination system, but that's just me. I agree. <laughs> All right. Well, I do respect your time and we've gone longer than uh, than I asked you for. So I greatly appreciate the time. And uh, I am absolutely certain uh, many people are going to love hearing what you've had to say. I appreciate you being willing to say it. There's a lot of us being quieted uh, as much as possible, and we need voices like yours. And so thank you so much for uh, being a voice of reason in the chaos that we are currently experiencing. Well, you're welcome, number one. And number two, thank you for this opportunity. It was a joy meeting you and your wife in Utah. And uh, I look forward to continued communication and community building as we uh, do the work in the world to bring truth and greater consciousness to people. And um, let's see where this goes. Let's see where it goes. We will see indeed. Thank you, Dr. Polevsky, very, very much for joining me on Vitality Radio. Thank you, Jared. All right. So that was Dr. Lawrence Polevsky. Uh, He actually goes by Larry for the most part. And uh, he is just such a genuine guy. I loved his energy when I was able to meet with him at the symposium a week and a half, two weeks ago now almost. And uh, I think the thing I respect the most about him is he's just unashamed of speaking his truth, even if his truth smacks in the face of what others might believe. And uh, I have a lot of admiration for that. What you've heard was uh, in some ways very controversial for sure. Uh, Other things you may have heard that you already agree with, certain things you may disagree with. The biggest thing that I want to bring to you on Vitality Radio is simply alternative ways of looking at what's going on in the world, specifically the world of health and nutrition. I never thought 13 years ago when I started this show that we'd be talking about a pandemic, a viral whatever for the next, for the last year and a half plus. I didn't see that on my horizon, but in the past, what I have tried to offer is still uh, an alternative viewpoint to the things that you hear primarily in the mainstream media. That has ramped up and changed a lot in the last year and a half for sure with COVID, but what I believe that has done is made what I do that much more important when it comes to this podcast and many other really great uh, shows that are out there uh, on non-mainstream media sources, even places like Rumble and BitChute, where you can only get things that, uh, or, or where they're only available in those places because they've been censored everywhere else. I would encourage you, whether you agree or disagree, 
with what you heard from Dr. Pilevsky that you at least, at the very least, uh, heed the advice of opening up your eyes fully to what may or may not be happening right now in this world and recognize that it's not wise to simply trust one source for information especially if that source just continues to confirm what you already believe. It is wise to look at what we don't know. We don't know what we don't know, and that is very, very important. So I'll leave you with those words uh, and also an admonition to check out more episodes of Vitality Radio coming up, these special episodes that I'm doing. I did one last week with uh, Andre Angelantoni, another very controversial topic for sure. I'm doing another one uh, here in the next couple of weeks with another doctor from the Your Health Freedom Symposium. These special episodes are different than what I air on the radio. Uh, They go into more detail. They are longer, as you can tell, as this one's going to be close to two hours. And they have basically things that I can't talk about on the radio because I've been told not to. Uh, Simple as that. And my feeling is if I've been told not to say it, then it probably needs to be heard. So that's what we're doing here on Vitality Radio on these special episodes. If you have questions about anything you hear on any episode of Vitality Radio, you can always call us at Vitality Nutrition and Bountiful at 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. And uh, you can ask any questions you have. Uh, You can get in touch with me, although it's sometimes a little bit challenging. I keep my schedule pretty full, but more than happy to help you with anything you need regardless of whether it's something you heard about here on the show or another health concern at Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful. Thank you so much for joining me once again. Again, a nice uh, thanks to Dr. Pilevsky for his generous donation of his time and knowledge. I greatly appreciate that. And I will sign out and uh, talk to you again on the next episode of Vitality Radio. You've been listening to the Vitality Radio Podcast. Enjoy your week. In the meantime, Jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it. Vitality Radio is researched, produced, and written by Jared St. Clair. Our awesome music is by Brian Bob Young. Support Vitality Radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast source. Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Vitality Radio. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast has not been evaluated by the FDA. This podcast is provided with the understanding that the information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a medical professional. Thank you.